The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Andrew Tobias ran the million-dollar student publishing business Let's Go, the student guide to Europe, while still an undergrad at Harvard. He created one of the first pieces of software for personal finance called Managing Your Money that he still uses. He spent the last 18 years as treasurer of the Democratic National Committee. His 12 books include three New York Times bestsellers, including Fire and Ice, a biography of Revlon founder Charles Revson, and the only investment guide you'll ever need that has been frequently updated since the original publication in 1978. And by the way, it's considered a classic in personal finance writing. He joins me now for a closer look. Welcome. In the introduction to the update of your book, you point out that 38 years ago, there were no 401ks or index funds and only 15 mutual funds. In the light of that, has your basic investing principles changed over the years as well? Well, uh, thank you for the kind introduction, Arthur. And, and um, it is a little embarrassing to have to uh, periodically update the so-called only investment guide you'll ever need. Uh, every five or six years, we uh, try to refresh it for little changes like they invented the internet, things like that. Um, but actually, uh, I'm lazy by nature, and one of the things that's most fun about each each revision, they pay me to update it, and so much of it actually doesn't change, which is great. So I, I leave those those paragraphs and pages and chapters unchanged, but obviously a tremendous amount has, and um, uh, much of it for the better. Uh, not only were there no IRAs, there were no Roth IRAs. Everybody, you know, should at least consider opening an Roth, a Roth IRA. And when we started in this business, uh, thank you again for lunch 43 years ago, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there was um, uh, the expenses and the, the transactional costs were enormous. Um, and there were certainly no index funds and, and with, you know, 16 basis point, 120 basis point fee structures. Um, so uh, a lot has changed, uh, but investing obviously remains as as challenging as ever, and maybe these days even a bit more. So um, uh, right. I haven't, I don't pretend to have uh, solved the puzzle. It's really unbelievable what we've seen. Now, of, of all the many new financial products that we have for investors, which one or two do you think has been the most beneficial? Well, 
you know, leaving aside um, uh, discount brokers, uh, where it's virtually free to trade now, which has the only the downside as you can be it becomes uh, could become a casino. But the two that I mentioned, the, the, the Roth IRA, really is a terrific way to save for the future, um, and index funds for that portion of your money that you do want exposed to the stock market, the equity markets, um, make it uh, so much easier and, and, and so reduce the, the uh, frictional costs and, and they're tax efficient and, and everything else. So they're, they're boring. Um, both of these things I've just said are boring. Uh, I personally don't follow too much of my own advice. The only real piece of my advice that I follow is to be well diversified. So when I do stupid things, which is very frequently, um, it, no one stupid thing can, can uh, sink me because um, it would be embarrassing for a financial writer to go bankrupt and, you know, all that. So I try very hard to, to be conservative, but with uh, loads of uh, unconservative investments, but, but widely, widely scattered. The world feels more volatile, and certainly the, the government seems chaotic. Why aren't the markets reacting, or they don't seem to be, reacting to that volatility? Well, first of all, I uh, share your wonderment at this. Second, uh, uh, I'm sure you'd agree that a key reason is that interest rates remain so low, and when the most you can get from treasuries, let alone a savings account or CDs, uh, you know, negligible, uh, it makes... Uh, the alternative investments and, and stocks in particular just seem like an easy way. And, and since they don't seem to go down, even, you know, every, no matter what's going on, they, they uh, don't seem to go down. People get kind of used to that. Kind of like in California, people always used to say, oh, real estate in California never goes down. No, no, it always goes up. It's question is, will it go up by 5% or 10% next year? And that went on a long, long time. And then guess what? Uh, the whole thing came crashing down. So I'm not sure that in the next few days or weeks or months uh, or a year or two, we won't look back and say, oh my gosh, we could have gotten out at 21,000 on the Dow uh, in July of, of 2017. Boy, you would have been smart to get out then. Um, but it doesn't feel that way on any given day. Uh, that's sort of the nature of, of uh, bull markets, I guess, or whatever that's we're when, in. That's just when it's going to happen. Yeah, just, just when we uh, feel that way. But now, I mean, anyone anyone listening who's on margin really should get out. That's the at the very least. Uh, but I keep trying to to get more liquid, and yet I have individual specific situations that, to me, don't seem like they should be tied to the stock market, and they seem so appealing. Um, and I'm stubborn and all that sort of thing. So I'm probably making this mistake, same mistake everybody else is who hasn't uh, raised a fair amount of cash in, in anticipation of the next crisis. And there will at some point be another financial crisis, whether it's years from now or, or days from now. This is a closer look at Andrew Tobias, author of the enduring personal finance classic, The Only Investment Guide You'll Ever Need. I'm Arthur Levitt. Andrew, what do you think of robo-advisors such as Wealthfront? I'm sorry, the what? Robo-advisors, Wealthfront, Betterment. Uh, oh, well, uh, first of all, I'm no expert, and secondly, it doesn't, to, to the extent I understand the concept, this is not um, 
uh, you know, either you're going to be in index funds, uh, which is simple uh, and tax efficient and very, very inexpensive, or uh, you're going to, with some portion of your money, and this is one of the things I suggest in the book, is that, you know, uh, let's say you have a total of $300,000 in your portfolio uh, that you want to expose to the stock market. So put maybe 270 in index funds, but with 30 find five or six different positions that are purposely quite speculative. Um, partly just to so you have some fun in your life, because if you're like me, it's just too boring to have all your money in treasuries and index funds and you know things like that. But also because some of those five or six, um, hopefully not all of them, are going to go to zero because they're risky and you're you're making you know you're taking a chance. Uh, those will help to lower your taxable income and, you know, can shave $3,000 a year off your taxable income. But one or two might do really, really well. Um, And if you've held them more than a year, or in my case, uh, 15 or 20 years with some of these dreadful things that I'm still waiting to come in, um, if you have a big long-term capital gain, you can use that to fund the very same charitable giving you would have done anyway through, like, the Fidelity Gift Fund or the Schwab Gift Fund, one of those. and but with the bulk of your money, uh, uh, I think you, you just stick with index funds if uh, you know for that portion of your money that you want exposed to the stock market. Do you think we'll ever move away from that? Uh, index funds right now are the rage. Everybody is 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 pulling for index funds as the safest way to go. Now, that waxes and wanes. Can't you envision a period of time in our markets and in our economy where active investing once more will be uh, the rage it was some years ago? Well, it may well be the rage, but it won't be smart for most people. It will be smart, you know, if if you ever had a situation, in theory, and we never will, but if you ever had a situation where everything were done with index funds, then there would be the really good companies would be way undervalued and the really bad companies way overvalued. But even in that, you know, kind of hypothetical situation, the people who would do best at trying to figure out which are which are not the average folks who have other jobs doing right. real things with their lives. It would be the professionals who have gigantic uh, research staffs and, and computers and, and, and MBAs for whatever that's worth, or at least, the, you know, the, you know, someplace in the Asperger's uh, <laughs> spectrum so that they're <laughs> really smart enough to figure out what the, what the heck is going on. So, uh, you know, um, was it Steinberg or, or I forget which, but, but you know, the most important thing, uh, you, uh, he was asked, what's the most important thing you can tell a small investor? He thought about it for a second, and he said, but I'm his, his competition, or I'm her competition. Um, so even in, in a world where active investing does make more sense, um, it probably won't be for the little guy. And the mutual funds that, that uh, do well as a result, which are run by professionals, a good chunk of that difference is going to be eaten up in the fees that they charge and the tax inefficiencies that most of them have if you're outside of, a, of an IRA. So I'm not too excited about that. I do like playing with these little speculations, and I do it all the time myself, but but uh, only with a small portion of somebody's assets. Don't people still need advice from an asset manager, even if they only invest in index funds? Well, you know, very rich people 
probably need advice and, and can afford it. But um, uh, for most people, and this is terribly self-serving, so if you can get it for free at the library, um, and I would gladly give you a copy if, if you were, I were there, because I don't, I don't need the royalties anymore, um, read the book, you know, and see whether that's enough. Because what struck me and when I first wrote 43 years ago or something like that was investing isn't like chess or cooking or gardening or something where the more books you read and the more you study and the more advice you get and all that, the better you do. With investing, it's always seemed to me that there are some basic things you need to know. You want to diversify. You want to keep your expenses low. Uh, you want to, you know, kind of be leery when everybody else thinks is excited about something and, and stay away, and, but maybe take a little risk when everybody is down on something and, and get in. So just some basic things like that to know. And beyond that, knowing more, I mean, take commodity speculation. You can get really interested if you read enough about commodity speculation, and, it's, and, and you can get addicted to it, and you'll lose your money. That's all you really need That's to right. know, is that almost everybody who, invests, who speculates in commodities loses their money. You know, case closed, at least, you know, from my point of view. Uh, one of your listeners has doubtless made billions uh, in commodity speculation and knows that I'm a fool, but most people lose their money. Now, in the book, you write about what you call the greatest moments of my life, which occurred at the Harvard Business School. What was the greatest moment in your life? Well, you know, back then especially, it was pretty intimidating, and, and I'm a very bad student, and so I had, I did not have many times that I shined or shone or whatever at business school. And, and one day I, we came in, and we had been given the, the case the night before was uh, on how to price your product. Um, and the truth to tell, I had gone out to a bar instead, and I hadn't read the case or done any of the math. Um, and um, and there was a whole big long thing. So, they, they, but there were, what were the odds that I would be called on to lead the class? There were seventy-five of us <laughs> there with our little name tags, and a wonderful guy, uh, uh, Paul Marshall, if I remember right, um, looked around and he saw that everybody else had all these yellow pages. This was before. Uh, personal computers and even before pocket calculators, I think. Uh, so all this, these yellow pages and all this homework and spreadsheets and all this stuff, and saw that I didn't really have anything in front of me. So he said, Tobias, you'd lead us off. And I usually much more of a coward than this and somehow summoned the courage. I'm really glad because it made a good footnote in the book. But I, I just swallowed hard and I said, well, professor. Uh, I know, of course, we were supposed to do all these calculations based on the chapter that you handed out and all that, and, but the case said that the company was um, producing all it could sell, uh, so there was clearly no point in its lowering its price because it was selling, it was making all it could, it was selling all it could make. And it also said that um, um, it was a very competitive market, this commodity market, and uh, they couldn't raise their price because uh, nobody else was charging more, so they shouldn't raise their price, so I figured that they should just uh, keep charging what they were charging, and I didn't do the calculations. And he got so angry, and I got so ready to, like, you know, crawl under the, the desk, but he was angry because he was supposed to say that after 50 minutes of our going round and round and round, and instead I had ended the class after 12 minutes, and he dismissed the class, and that was the greatest moment of my life. Um, possibly still is, or just, just about. Great story. Andrew, do you own gold or Bitcoin? No. 
Do you think there's a future for cryptocurrency? Well, I, I'm too old to totally grasp it. There obviously it's turned out to be much more successful than I had imagined, and uh, and there may well be. But um, you know, it's something that I don't uh, claim to understand, and and uh, I don't really think that it probably serves society in the ways that um, we might want. So I'm not eager to. Uh, there, there are enough alternative things to invest in and learn about, so that's just not been high on my list. And gold, you know, is the same sort of deal. It's um, uh, obviously has some. Uh, every once in a while, I'll uh, buy a few shares of uh, GLD, the, the ETF that holds gold for a friend or for me or something. Uh, but um, really, it's it's such a it's a completely unproductive asset, and um, I've. In my in the book, I you know give the rundown on reasons not to own it. Um, if you're looking for an inflation hedge, there are better ones. If you're uh, and if we do have some sort of terrible disaster, um, you know, uh, better to have some silver dimes, uh, actual you know, because you can't. How are you going to make change for a loaf of bread if you bring in uh, you know a ten thousand uh, dollar Kruger Rand or gold? Yeah, yeah. What's the so, no? I'm not a but. Sorry. What's the worst investment mistake most people make? Well, <laughs> you know, um, the I guess the the basic thing is people tend to get excited when everybody else around them is making money, and so they they take a tip from a friend, and and that's uh, just exactly when you should be getting out, um, um, or uh, they simply. Uh, you know, it's it's very hard to be patient. If somebody gets into the right habits when they're young, and and uh, is able to set aside some money every week or every month, um, both for intermediate term kinds of expenses like the down payment on a house or, or some education uh, expense, uh, but also for the long term with a Roth IRA uh, for your retirement or uh, or fully funding the. 401k that your employer offers, especially if if there's a, a match of some kind, 50 cents on the dollar, or even a dollar on the dollar in some cases. Um, if you get into those basic boring habits, and if you can make a game out of living frugally, I, I prefer frugal to cheap. I try to be generous when it comes to giving money away, but but frugal and, and, and kind of clever about not wasting money. Um, the game becomes fun. We people, you know, we like playing games. And if you turn the, the money saving into a game, uh, and there are a bunch of ways of doing it, those kinds of habits, having nothing to do with Harvard MBAs or, or you know, analyzing the intrinsic values of options and alpha and beta and things that I only barely grasp, those habits are going to serve you way better than your chances of beating the market uh, or you know getting rich quick. That's absolutely fabulous advice. Now. In the book, you also predicted that our government will never default. Are you still just as certain about that? <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I, I guess I'm, instead of being triple uh, A <laughs> certain now, I'm double A certain. Um, okay. We are, yeah, <laughs> you know, we, we, uh, it would be a different country, uh, but we are. Uh, we are a different country. We, but we are a little bit on the, I'm hoping that we, in fact, will not 
that you know we'll recover from this uh, and maybe sooner rather than later i'm not quite sure how but um I mean, I, I, if this is a, a gentle segue to politics, I'll, I'm all ready for you because, boy, <laughs> do we ever have um, do we ever have a challenge on our hands as, as a as a country and a democracy? Well, I see eight years with Trump. I gather you disagree. <laughs> you you see what with Trump? I see another term of Trump. Oh 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 oh. Or you mean filling out this term? Yes. Or you mean the second term? Yes. Well. Uh, I, on the one hand, you know, logically, it's pretty hard. Well, no, actually, I, I do disagree. I, uh, based on no more than anybody else knows, but I think that at some point um, there will be enough uh, hard evidence of of, uh, of uh, wrongdoing and things that outrage the average American that either there will be. Uh, impeachment, or there will be, you know, uh, the 25th Amendment, Section 4, uh, may not happen. Uh, but I think the, much of the com- country will be clamoring for it. Uh, and that doesn't solve all our problems either. And I, I don't know how all this plays out, which well, is... I, uh, yeah. I think that politically, uh, I find it unlikely because we haven't defined a candidate yet. And I think it's getting late to define a candidate uh, to run against someone who's in office. And I don't see any of the prospective candidates as having the qualities to beat Trump politically. Now, whether Trump gets indicted or God knows what else, gets bored with a job, then all bets are off. But I think from a political point of view, I think we have a weak Democratic uh, bench and uh, uh, beating back a second term will be very difficult in the absence of some uh, legal uh, issue. Well, I, I disagree with you a lot on that. I thought I thought you were, we were really talking about whether or not he'd even finish his first term, which is, you know, <laughs> there I, I grant you that um, that uh, uh, that certainly may happen, but um, it's hard for me to see how it does, but it's also hard for me to see how it doesn't. Second term uh, is, uh, well, I don't know, the Russians um, might be able to help them enough, and there are enough things going on, but but the idea that there's no bench, um, there are tons of people uh, who would, I I think, people would be so pleased to have a uh, a competent, rational, thoughtful uh, candidate. Uh, and not a lot of people three years, three and a half years before the 2008 election would have told you who Barack Obama is. And there are, whether it's somebody who comes uh, somewhat out of left field um, uh, the way Obama did, or whether it's uh, someone tried and true or in the middle, there, we have some great senators and, and uh, what and are the odds for a business person? What are the odds on a Democratic Congress in 2018? Well, the odds are better than most people think. Uh, for the Senate, it's a long shot because uh, there's so many of the seats that are up are, are Democratic. Um, and uh, but here's the to me, if we have a real wave election in 2018, which we may not, 
But there is tremendous angst in the country, and I think it will only get worse at the rate we're going, where people are thinking, this is nuts. We have to fix this. And if, if nothing has happened before 2018, that is our first chance in the normal order of things to fix it. And the, the turnout in 2010 and 2014, the last two midterm elections, was about 37 percent. If we could, if the Democrats were sufficiently aroused and horrified by what's going on and dismayed by what's happening to their country and outraged by all these things, that we got up to a still pathetic 45 percent, let's say, just by way of taking a number, for example. That's still terrible. It's fewer than half. I mean, less than half, 45 percent. But if we got our turnout up to 45 percent and the Republican turnout stayed around 37 percent because you know, they were less enthusiastic about what's going on, um, well, even with all the gerrymandering and the red map uh, project that we could talk about and all that, with a, a delta in turnout like that from 37 percent to 45 percent, we sweep the Congress and we might even take back the Senate. Um, and that's what we need to do. And the only thing that keeps us from doing it is not doing it. So those of your listeners who actually would like to see uh, some checks and balances to this whole thing, um, even if they're not rabid Democrats the way I basically am and, and uh, tens of millions of us are, um, that's what we need to do. We need to actually go and vote. And it turns out it's legal to vote in the midterm. I mean, I, I always say that with a smile, but then people can But, you know, why don't they do it? It's legal to do it. You know how to do it. You vote every four years. The turnout in the, in the presidential is more like 50, 55 or 60 percent. So if we could get our midterm turnout up to 45 percent, everything changes. It'll be maybe too late to, to reverse. Well, it will be too late to reverse much of the damage that will have been done. We've already, in six months, um, really lost our... Uh, a good chunk, not all of it, but certainly, but a chunk of our standing as the world's leader and our allies and, and are, are turning to others for uh, to build stronger alliances and so on and so forth. You, Everybody knows all these things, but anyway, the chances are um, reasonably good that we could take back the House and even the Senate, but only if we do it. The angry voters in the last election weren't weren't wrong. All the wealth is accruing at the top, and the game still seems to be rigged. But do the voters know where the blame belongs for this? No, that's the, I mean, the, the angry voters absolutely weren't wrong. And one of the failings of, um, of the Obama administration, uh, which I hold in super high regard, I think uh, the president was amazing, and the accomplishments of the, you know, saving the country and the world from the depression and, uh, and everything else that he did. Um, uh, you know, so he has few fans bigger than me, but one place that I think Obama would acknowledge and, and others acknowledge he fell short was in really helping people see the big picture and taking credit for some of the things that have been done. Take the Obamacare as the most obvious example. The number one thing, and I, I kept trying to, you know, I kept push the, pushing this on my little website and trying to get other, you know, people with larger micro, uh, uh, megaphones to use this. But the biggest thing it did, because everybody knows there's no free lunch, um, and most people probably know we should just have single payer like they have in every other industrialized country in the world, and, and things would be much better off. But we can't get that here, or at least uh, no time soon. 
So the big thing about Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, is it took hundreds of billions of dollars from really wealthy Americans, and it used that to subsidize health care for folks who needed the help. Now, that's something that philosophically a lot of people say, oh, no, no, no. You make $500 million a year in, in, in investment income. You shouldn't be taxed on that. Okay, that's your opinion. Others of us think, you know what, in a world where you've got to raise taxes someplace, as long as you stay under the top rate that Ronald Reagan charged, which was 28% for dividends and capital gains, and even with Obamacare, we only got it up to 23.8%, so it's still well below Ronald Reagan's rate. That, to me, was a pretty wonderful thing. There was much more to the Affordable Care Act than that, but the big picture was you're taking tons of money from rich people and using it to make health care affordable for people who really, really need it. Kind of a what? Christian notion, if you ask me. But now, so now you've got a guy uh, and uh, the Republican Party, which uh, the voters have put in charge of both houses of Congress, and they've given the you know angry voters who gave us Trump. And their notion is take all those billions and hundreds of billions of dollars back out of health care, give it back to wonderful people. Some of them are friends of mine who make many, many, many millions of dollars a year. Um, and that's a cornerstone in solving the health care crisis. I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me. But uh, so, yes, people have a right to be angry, but they should be angry at the Republicans and at Trump. Now, if the divide in the country is urban versus rural, with large cities, even in red states, voting for Democrats, what does that mean for the future? Well, uh, one of the things that we have to do, and we have to do much better, is we have to try to help people see what's going on. Uh, I don't think... It, I, when I was first offered... I, the only time I was ever in a big fancy meeting, I had just been asked uh, by the Clinton folks to be treasurer of the DNC. Uh, and there I was in the White House, President Clinton, Vice President Gore, the incoming uh, chair, uh, the incoming, uh, all these people. And everybody went around the room and said something, and I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> this is so far above my pay grade, I wasn't going to say one word. And the Vice President says, Andy, you haven't said anything. <laughs> and I swallowed really hard, and I figured I had to say something, so I said, well, listen, I, <laughs> this is, you guys are all pros, and I'm, I'm very new to this, but it seems to me that if everybody really understood the facts and what the Democrats are for and what the Republicans are for and, and really understood the issues, we would get 85% of the vote. You know, we might not get the super, the people for whom... Um, uh, choice and, and, and abortion is a key, key issue, and we, uh, and we might not get all the billionaires and all that, but we get 85% of the vote. So it seems to me my job is to help raise the money to um, get the word out as best we can. So even if we don't get 85%, uh, we'll get 51%. And, you know, eyes were appropriately rolled around the table, but I, I got through it. But the funny thing is, I still think that. Uh, I think that climate change is real. Now, I know, you know, most Republicans, according to polls, don't. But I think science, you know, my, my cell phone works. It's astonishing. That's based on science. All these things we rely on are based on science. So, you know, probably if the scientific community says it's real and it's a huge crisis for mankind, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I get a little carried away with the stuff. I apologize, Arthur. But it's so frustrating because 
my overall view is that after 10,000 human generations, 10,000 human generations of suffering and striving and struggling and shivering and itching and smelling awful, and, you know, occasionally I assume there was a nice sunny day and they didn't know better, so people, you know, enjoyed themselves. But it was a very, very hard life. Here we are. Here we are. Everybody listening has magic in his or her pocket, a cell phone that has all the world's information, all the world's symphonies. We live better than any. Uh, it's a, it's, you know, you can't get lost. It's a flashlight. Um, we live better than any emperor or czar or king or empress or queen ever lived. Those of us who listen to Bloomberg uh, radio and that sort of thing. Um, and after 10,000 human generations, we have 10 or 20 years as a species to get on a sustainable path. When I was born, there were 2.5 billion passengers on the spaceship. Today, there are 7.5 billion, triple what I, when I was born. Um, and we're on the cusp of just amazing prosperity for virtually everybody, the kind of prosperity that you and I and most of your listeners enjoy. Or we are on the precipice of hurtling off the rails with such chaos and such misery and such disaster that we even... We won't go extinct in the next 10 or 20 years, probably, but in the next couple hundred years, we may, we may pass the point of no return if in the next 10 or 20 years we can't learn to live together and distribute the, the fruits of this amazing technological progress that's changed everything. There were no cell phones 20 years ago. <laughs> Imagine, or whatever, 30 years ago, whatever it was. This is it. This is it. And at the moment, we've entrusted the future of mankind to Donald J. Trump and Mitch McConnell and some folks who I don't think necessarily have the vision to guide the world to a successful conclusion or a successful outcome, I should say. Do you think the, electoral, speech. Do you think the electoral college still makes sense? No. Um, as you know, the, there's a, uh, the National Popular Vote Compact, uh, Interstate Compact, um, uh, is a, a practical way that we might actually be able to get rid of it. Um, if the person with the most votes had been allowed to be president in 2000, there would have been no war in Iraq. There might well not have been a 9-11, which a lot of people disagree with, but talk to me after class and I might be able to persuade you. Our balance sheet would be trillions of dollars stronger, and we would be um, eight years further along in combating uh, climate change and in, in, uh, in stem cell research that might someday save your child's life. So that one was unfortunate. And this one, where the Democrat won by only 3 million votes, um, which would have been more, of course, in various scenarios, but I'll leave that alone. Uh, this is not necessarily the best way to do it. And we also have to fix redistricting, uh, or, you know, the, the, the gerrymandering, because the example uh, that sticks in my mind is uh, this was true of many states, but in Pennsylvania in 2012, uh, statewide, there are 18 congressional districts in Pennsylvania, and the Democrats statewide won 84,000 more votes for Congress than the Republicans. So you might figure that, well, 18 seats, 84,000 isn't really that many votes in Pennsylvania, so it's nine and nine, or maybe 10 for the Democrats and eight for the Republicans, or even 10 for the Republicans and eight for the Democrats in a kind of a quirky world. No. We got 84,000 more votes in Pennsylvania. They got 13 of the 18. We got, we got five seats. They got 13. This isn't necessarily democracy the way our founders 
imagined it. This is a closer look at author and journalist Andrew Tobias, who just ended 18 years of service as the treasurer of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, California has 40 million people, and Wyoming has 600,000, but they have the same two senators. Did the founders envision a state that has a larger economy than most countries, but still only two senators? <laughs> well, look, some of, the, some of the compromises that were made to found our wonderful republic um, are not realistically going to get uh, changed, I think, anytime soon. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if your fathers want enough, one might move to Wyoming uh, <laughs> and, and have more power by by living there. But, I mean, of course, I totally hear you, Arthur, and you're totally right. But but there are other things that uh, are along the same lines but are fixable. Um, the gerrymandering that has, uh, uh, and there was, if anybody is interested in the details, the, the, just Google the word, the, the word red map, R-E-D-M-A-P. Uh, it was a brilliant notion of the of a couple of Republican operatives who got $30 million from some wealthy Republicans, um, and they they managed to flip uh, enough state legislatures um, that when the census came out in 2010, they basically cooked the Democratic goose for 10 years. And when you hear about the thousands of state legislative seats that went red, um, and, and this example I just gave of Pennsylvania, where we got more votes for Congress than the Republicans, but because of the districting, they got 13 of the, of the seats and we got five for Congress. Um, that sort of thing, uh, could be fixed. In Florida, there was a fair districts, uh, initiative that was passed by the people, uh, a referendum, and then was endlessly challenged in court, and then it was endlessly fought by the, uh, Republican-controlled legislature, but the courts kept finding for the for the uh, referendum, and actually that has has helped, and and the districts are uh, somewhat fair. Uh, and by the way, this isn't only to benefit Democrats. If we could get more sensible districts, we could have more moderate centrist people willing to compromise and work together. Sensible moderate Republicans, which there used to be a lot of in this country. And sensible, moderate Democrats, of which I would argue there still are a lot of in this country, uh, working together. But when you have such gerrymandered districts, as you well know, uh, Arthur, it brings out the extreme voters in the primaries. And, and uh, so there, there are some ways to fix that. But I think Wyoming's probably not going to lose any senators, and, and uh, California will probably not get any more than it's already got. Do you think that the urban citizens who feel they're not getting a fair representation uh, are correct? Well, <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's complicated because, to a certain extent, it's not gerrymandering with weird districts that are, are drawn to resemble crazy, uh, crazy patterns in order to put all the, you know, all the voters in one district. To a certain extent, People of like mind, more and more, are living uh, in the same place, and some of it happens on its own. So I'm not. I wouldn't say that uh, all this is is easy, um, but clearly, 
um, when you do have districts that have been purposely gerrymandered to to uh, advantage one party over another, and when you have a situation, and it's again, it's the only one that sticks in my head with the exact numbers, but there are lots of examples of this because of the red map project that the Republicans were so successful with. When you have a state like Pennsylvania, where Democrats get 84,000 more votes for Congress, but they get 13 out of the 18 seats, and we get five, that needs to be fixed. You once wrote a New York Times best-selling book about Charles Revson called Fire and Ice. Why was he so interesting to you? Uh, he certainly was an interesting character. Uh, is there a businessman or woman now that you'd write about if you wanted to do another book? Not that he'd have to have the same uh, abrasive personality. Well, there's some wonderful business people. And, and you know, what a time to be alive with companies. Uh, I mean, Elon Musk, of course, comes to mind. I mean, maybe one reason the stock market is doing as well as it is, uh, despite the crazy things that are going on, um, companies uh, uh, are so strong and uh, have so, uh, so, some companies have so grabbed onto the future, um, the Googles and the Amazons and the, and the uh, Teslas and, and so on, um, not recommending their stocks in particular, because obviously the, the stock prices probably reflect a lot of this, but it's so exciting. And yes, we're citizens of this wonderful country that we all love, and I certainly love, but we're also citizens in a sense, and more practically, we're customers. Uh, I don't have a Tesla, but I sure would like to have uh, a, a roof, a solar roof and the battery. And, and you know, 10, 20 years from now, uh, we'll be independent of the electric grid and, and uh, that much more secure and that much more energy efficient. Um, so, yeah, there are some, uh, all, all Revson did, as he figured out the nail polish and, and lipstick and got them to match. And if you're interested in that, go see a Broadway show called War Paint which is not about Revson. He's a bit part in it, but it's about uh, Helena Rubinstein and, and Estee Lauder. Um, actually, Martha, you, have you seen it? No, I haven't. Well, it's pretty good. Um, uh, you know, it's not My Fair Lady, but it's pretty good. And it's about these wars, and, and they have him because he played a role in it, too, so they have a sort of a bit part. I wasn't thrilled with the way they portrayed him, but Charles Revson was a remarkable guy who kind of like Steve Jobs or kind of like Elon Musk or anybody, I think, who who has a fabulous success in, in business, was so focused on the customer and the product and making that product absolutely great and, you know, exactly what the customer wanted. In the case of Resin, it was an unimportant product, it, you know, nail polish and lipstick, basically, and, and then perfume. But and in the case of Steve Jobs, it only changed the world. But there was... Um, uh, there's uh, elements of uh, commonality between these people. He's the author of 12 books, including the New York Times bestseller and personal finance classic, The Only Investment Guide You'll Ever Need, with more than a million copies sold. He also served as the treasurer of the Democratic National Committee from 1999 to 2017. Visit his website, money, and other matters at www.andrewtobias.com. And you can follow him on Twitter 
at Andrew Tobias. Andy Tobias, thank you for joining us. By the way... Thank you so much. You're one of my heroes, Arthur. It's a pleasure to, to talk with you. Thank you. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.